My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Hey, welcome back. It is great to have you tuned into another episode of Transmissions. Our guest this week is Amanda Petrusich of The New Yorker. She's the author of It Still Moves, Lost Songs, Lost Highways, and The Search for the Next American Music, and Do Not Sell at Any Price, The Wild Obsessive Hunt for the World's Rarest 78 RPM Records. I'm a huge fan of her books and her writing. I first encountered her stuff at Pitchfork and followed her to places like The New York Times and Oxford American. I'm a huge fan, and she's a tremendous inspiration, so it was a real genuine pleasure to connect with her at home via the landline. Naturally, the internet is not so great at her place in upstate New York, and we caught up about uh, balancing comfort listening with uh, new new sounds, uh, Bob Dylan's Christian era, uh, the mysticism of Harry Smith, and uh, a bunch of other uh, pretty passionate music nerd uh talking points. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. I appreciate how many of you have been reaching out lately to say hi on Twitter and let us know what you think of the show. Always feel free to drop us a line or a message. And remember that if you really dig transmissions, you can uh, leave us a rating or a review. Uh, Post the link to your social media channels, that sort of thing. And if you want to take your support a step further, check Aquarium Drunkard out on Patreon. Amanda, thanks so much for joining me here on the Transmissions Podcast. Uh, I'm excited that we finally get a chance to to speak. I guess we've emailed back and forth, but this is our first time having a real conversation. I know, uh, indeed. I'm this, really glad. This feels momentous. I am um, thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know, we went back and forth a little bit about the logistics of how we were going to do this because you don't have uh, the best service there in in the Catskills. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about uh, your place there. How long have you have you been out there, and and what's it like? Sure. Uh, yes, I'm like a bit of a luddite at heart, so I have to admit, like moving to a semi rural area has really enabled that like it's just allowed me to sort of indulge all of my kind of shameful anti-technology tendencies Uh, because as you mentioned there is no cell phone service here and and the wi-fi is like a little bit of you know a roll of the dice um, depending on the day and the weather so it feels a little I mean it feels perhaps an overstatement to call it off the grid but it's a little bit less on the grid than certainly my life um, in Brooklyn was so I've been at this place since March, um, kind of decamped here pretty quickly after things got sort of dicey in the city with the, the early days of COVID. Um, but I've actually owned this cabin since about two and a half years ago. And uh, it's been such a gift. I mean, I feel 
guilty. I, I think like anyone who left New York, you know, who had the chance to kind of leave New York uh, during this crisis, I think there was a lot of sort of guilt and shame and, and almost a weird kind of fucked up sort of FOMO. Not so much, you know, missing out on the anguish and grief, but but wishing you could sort of be there to help your neighbors more. Um, but I have to say, right. I've ta- taken to the kind of relative isolation of living in the mountains pretty instinctively. It's it's incredibly beautiful here and, and quiet and, you know, a, a nice place to get some writing done. Is Is that quiet? I mean, did it take you a while to get adjusted to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that the uh, the kind of beautiful noise of a city is, you know, can can come to be really soothing, or at least as soothing as it is distracting. So, to have that disappear really quickly, um, yeah, it was jarring. Uh, but there's, you know, I, <laughs> sort of the sound of ambulances and car honks has kind of given way to, you know, like oh, the bear just knocked over the trash can again, and. Uh, you know, uh, there goes the snowplow. There, there's a sort of different sort of music in the air up here. Um, but yeah, right. got it. And it's hard. I'm sure everyone's feeling this. Like this, the last, you know, 11 months have been so disorienting that you're sort of like, well, what's just, you know, a sort of side effect of living through 2020? And, and what perhaps is, you know, it's a side effect of this new environment I find myself in. I kind of can't untangle all of the weird things that have been going on and all of the strange feelings I've been having. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's maybe the, 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 I mean, we can all sort of point to the very, uh, easy to, to spot ways that the weirdness of the last year and then into this new year, you know, we, we can all point to the weird ways that the, that's affected us, I think. But I think that the one thing that everybody's having a hard time putting their finger on is exactly what you're talking about this weird sense of like wait so what of this is the collective weirdness and what of it is my own weirdness and is there any difference you know i think that's been such a weird thing for people to untangle yeah absolutely and and you know you want to sort of give credence to the notion that everyone's experience of this is really different but at the same time it does feel like there's that kind of collective undercurrent of just disorientation, you know, and fear and, and also these odd pockets of relaxation and quiet, like kind of what we were talking about earlier, like, there are these moments where you think, you know, it's kind of nice to not have to, I don't know, sort of be uh, incessantly kind of subject to just the, the sort of noise of daily living as much as I miss it. I have, I have leaned into some of those moments of peace and, and appreciated them. So it's, yeah, it's just this incredibly strange um, collection of feelings that, you know, we're all navigating in different ways, but but also navigating collectively, as we were saying. You you mentioned that being out there has uh, maybe increased your your Luddite sensibilities. I wonder, uh, has being out there changed your relationship with with music at all, or or your listening habits, maybe? Yeah, I feel like it's been kind of fascinating uh, to sort of track my tendencies through all of this. I I think at first, like the first few months, it was, you know, almost kind of obsessive listening. And maybe part of that was replacing the noise of Brooklyn and my life in Brooklyn, you know, (laughs) just sort of filling it in with records. um, Because I was uncomfortable with just how uh, kind of silent uh, and how sort of deep the silence could be up here. And then I think I went through that phase where it was like, things just seemed so grim 
that music almost bummed me out. It was like everything bummed me out. And I just wanted to kind of stare blankly into the middle distance and, and engage with nothing. Uh, and now yeah. then I sort of came back, you know, and, and, and then there was the kind of comfort listening period where I just wanted to listen to records that I'd loved since I was a teenager. I didn't really want to hear anything new. I didn't want to hear anything that was difficult. Um, you know, these are not things I'm proud of as a listener. <laughs> I'd like to sort of pride myself <laughs> on, you know, being a little uh, perhaps slightly more adventurous than that. But uh, but yeah, just kind of comfort food records. And and now I finally feel like I'm back in a place where I'm sort of consuming music in a semi-familiar way, uh, you know, listening to new things, sort of getting excited about new things again. But yeah, I mean, how is it for you? Has it been like a similar sort of ride or, or were you just sort of out of the gate, kind of kept up with the way you'd been working before? Um, God, that's a tough one. Yeah. The tables have turned. Now, yeah. now I'm trying to think about <laughs> it for myself. Sorry, this um, is the two journalist in conversation problem, <laughs> where it's like nobody's um, comfortable answering the questions. <laughs> um, I think that it it is similar for me. I definitely went through a thing where, like, kind of early on, I I leaned into a lot of sounds that I was really drawn to. Um, in terms of like comfort, you know, like records that I that records that I that I grew up loving, records that really first sort of turned me on to music, and then, you know, I already kind of listened to a lot of like new age and guitar solo guitar stuff and stuff that could be sort of m- more tranquil and and, yeah. and placid than other stuff. But as the year has gone on, and as I have found myself more angry and frustrated and and sort of like uh you know when i started to 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 pick up on the weird ways that i was disassociating from what was happening i did find myself turning to more aggressive stuff and and weirdly enough like for the last couple months i've been interested in like really harsh electronic stuff and and industrial stuff areas that i had never really gone down you know what i mean Mm. or not with any real intensity. So I do think that like I went through the thing where I also didn't want to be challenged so much. And now I feel like I'm back in the, the, the headspace of like uh, the happy soothing stuff that I had sort of been listening to isn't scratching the itch. It's not, it's not matching the emotional pitch of, of what I'm feeling right now. So I found myself thinking and listening to more, you know, sort of abrasive stuff, which has been a, a weird a weird thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you though. That stuff can, I, I mean, it's, it hits in a sort of visceral way and it's cathartic. And, and those are all the cliches that people kind of lob at, you know, super aggressive music, but it, but it's true. And I think when you're pissed off and you're feeling a little helpless and, and angry, I mean, that's me describing my experience. Um, yeah. I mean, it sounds really good. It, it, it's like something is sort of lined up uh, in the right way, you know, in terms of what you're feeling and sort of what you're hearing. And it's incredibly satisfying. So yeah, I get that. Yeah. I, I'm glad to be back in that space where I'm I'm sort of ready for that. Yeah, for sure. You know, you in the in the intro to your your great book, Do Not Sell at Any Price, um you write in the intro that that your primary mode of self-expression is music. And I'm going to quote you say, "I was what I heard always." And I really that's such a beautiful line. And I, and I wondered if you could tell me what what were the first records that you that you really really loved? Um either as, you know, stuff you heard from your parents or, or and, you know, your own stuff. What, what were some of those records for you? Well, first of all, thank you. That's really kind. Um, I, you know, for me, I think as a kid, it was like 
what I heard on the radio. So, you know, it kind of started out a lot of like Cyndi Lauper and, you know, Madonna and this sort of uh, like mid to late 80s kind of pop music. Uh, But the first stuff I really got into, I mean, the first band I ever really loved thoroughly and deeply was R.E.M. Uh, And from R.E.M., I sort of quickly Mm -hmm. made my way toward The Clash and then stayed in a sort of punk rock place for most of my adolescence. And, And those were the records I was really obsessed with uh and records that i kind of i think both sought and found uh, a sort of self-identity in you know it was like oh okay i can even though i don't really consider myself a particularly punk rock person <laughs> i'm not perhaps you know aspirationally rebellious uh there was something kind of in the you know the urgency and the rawness and the sort of honesty and the ugliness of some of those records that i just my teenage brain was just obsessed with and i i couldn't get enough and i had a really great local record store, um, which unfortunately is no longer there, a place called Exile on Main Street, which was in Mount Kisco, New York. Uh, and and it was like the kind of place you could just sort of walk in. And it was so well curated that, and I was lucky to have it, that kind of almost any record I picked up would be worth bringing home and memorizing and, you know, spending my babysitting money on. Um, but that was the stuff that for me, right away, I think it felt um, kind of dangerous and sort of tenuous and and you know like the whole thing could kind of come apart at any minute and I still find myself listening for those things you know for you know good or bad that's kind of what I want I want that little bit of danger or that you know sense of I don't know what's going to happen next and and this thing is a little scary and it uh you know could could explode in my face um at any moment I find myself still craving that as a listener and I think that was something I developed yeah, pretty young. I think when I was a teenager, it it gets the sense that I I get the sense that you're talking about wanting music to feel important, or maybe not, maybe not important. Uh, no, I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I think important. Yeah, like si- serious, <laughs> which is maybe serious, I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's a even less precise word than important, but high stakes. You know, I wanted it to feel high stakes, and I wanted it to feel just a little bit threatening, you know, kind of threatening in the best way, in the way that, you know, like falling in love feels threatening, right? Like, and it feels high stakes. I think it was, that was what I wanted, that kind of nervousness in my stomach where, you know, I knew like this thing could change everything. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was the first music that you found yourself compelled to write about? Oh, God, that's a great question. I mean, my sort of the, like you know, kind of twin loves of my youth were books and records. Uh, And I think as soon as I sort of figured out, you know, maybe the first time I got my hands on a copy of Rolling Stone, like the the first time I sort of figured out you could do both at the same time, (laughs) you know, you could write sentences about music. uh, It just, it felt like a revelation. It felt like, well, I, you know, I don't know if I will actually be able to do this, but I can't imagine wanting to do anything else. And God, for me, I mean, I was a film critic at my college newspaper, and I think that was where I sort of got the criticism bug or or kind of became really interested in in journalism and reporting and, uh, you know, the entire field of criticism. Prior to that, I used to write a lot of um, probably like many, you know, angsty 20-year-olds. I used to write a lot of, you know, really overwrought um, poetry and essays and short stories. And there was always music in there. I mean, in one way or another, it was kind of very present in everything I wrote from an early age. Um, I think that the first, God, I'm not positive about this, but I think that the first 
record review I ever wrote that was published um, was a review of Interpol's first record. I just graduated from college. I just moved to New York. And it was the sort of, you know, halcyon days of that scene, um, kind of the strokes, Interpol, yeah, 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 as that kind of Lower East Side, New York sort of return to a certain kind of rock and roll. Um, I think that was the first record I ever reviewed for publication. And it was for like a little web, like a kind of local website. God, I'm blanking on the name of it, which is embarrassing. Uh, it was not around for very long. I think I was maybe paid like 10 bucks if I was paid anything. Uh, but that was kind of the beginning. And then from there, uh, I got a job at Pitchfork back when Pitchfork was still a, a kind of different machine than it is now. Um, and that was where I really came of age as a critic and, and you know, had the chance to kind of explore my own taste and sort of explore how I wanted to express certain ideas on the page. That, I mean, I was uh, such an avid reader of Pitchfork at that time. And, uh, and there was, and, you know, and I still am, I still read Pitchfork. But, um, you know, there was this sense for me that at that time as a, as a, a listener that things were breaking open in, in new ways. And I don't know <laughs> if that's, you know, objectively true or accurate. Um, I don't know if that statement ever is objectively true and accurate, but it felt like that to me that there was all of a sudden this thing, this website where you could go and you could find, you know, Aquarium Drunkard was a similar thing for me, uh, you know, soon, soon thereafter, but you could find things that you didn't know, or you could find things that were related to things you, you cared about, uh, and spin off in all these different directions. What did writing for Pitchfork feel like in, in those days? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to hear you say that. Cause I, that was very similar to my experience too. And I feel like th that idea has kind of dissipated in recent years. <laughs> you know, the idea of like, what we called in the 90s alternative music and then later became, you know, indie or indie rock. Like, you know, those designations are, are sort of meaningless these days. And and the idea that there would ever be a kind of us versus them mentality, you know, pr probably for the best is is just sort of gone, you know, gone from kind of the cultural vernacular in a way. We don't talk about music that way. You know, everything is everything. It's all sort of available. This idea of a kind of cross-pollination between genres is is so commonplace now as to be almost unremarkable. But back then, you really kind of pledged allegiance to a thing, you know, and for me, it was that the sort of punk and the indie and that kind of scene that really felt underrepresented and, and also outside of something. Uh, so to find a publication like Pitchfork or Aquarium Drunkard in those years, it really did feel like this sort of beam of light, you know, in, in the darkness. And uh, it was like, oh, these people are into what I'm into and they're excited to talk about it and it means a lot to them. And there's this sort of crazy energy to, you know, to the fandom and to the criticism that was just, you know, for me, it was like I couldn't get enough of it. Um, I was so excited to find people that felt as strongly as I did about music and about the same music that I was into. Um, and again, now that all seems kind of silly, like it's much easier to find those communities. But back then, I think it was still a little tough. Or it was tough for me, at least. In those early days of Pitchfork, it was, you know, I was very much kind of finding my voice as a critic. Um, it was a little tricky, too, then. There were not a lot of women writing about music, I think, for a long time. I was the only woman critic on staff at Pitchfork. So I think yeah. it was also figuring out like, you know, the, the way that I listen to music and the way that I want to write about it feels like a little bit different than, 
the canon of, you know, rock and roll writing and, and how do I, you know, how do I sort of navigate that? Do I have to write to sound more like Lester Bangs or can I sort of be myself in this? You know, I didn't really know. I was sort of, there weren't a ton of models for the kind of work that I wanted to do. And it, it took a lot of figuring out. Um, and I was lucky in many ways that Pitchfork was actually an incredible place to do that. Um, and it was also still small enough of a site in those years that I don't think I had like a kind of foreboding sense of an audience. <laughs> I mean, people certainly read yeah. it uh, and we would hear from them, but it, this was like pre-Twitter, you know, it was sort of before you had a kind of direct line to your readership. And I, I think in some ways being insulated from that was kind you know, to me, uh, or at least sort of gave me a sense of freedom that, you know, I don't even know that I necessarily feel now. So you know, that's oh, yeah, a double, it's a sure. double-edged sword. I mean, because in some ways you're like, well, I, I don't feel accountable to anyone because I don't know who's reading this. But you're also not accountable to anyone. <laughs> I mean, that can kind of be both a good thing and a bad thing. But uh, but yeah, I remember I would have to still tell people what Pitchfork was. You know, I couldn't be like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm writing this thing for Pitchfork. I would have to say, I think we still called right. it Pitchfork Media back then even. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it would have to be explained. Like, oh, it's this music reviews website. Um yeah, and there was some freedom in that, I think, especially for a young writer. I sometimes think how if I would have actively considered people reading my work for the first, like, 10 years that I did it, um, I would have stopped writing it. You know yeah, what I mean? Oh like, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I Because, like, I don't... And I don't know what that means, and I don't know what I thought, you know, that nobody was reading, because obviously some, some people were. But anyway, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I know that thing of... You know, what struck me about your early reviews then and, and your writing now is that, you know, you don't write about music the way um, maybe like a like a Lester Bangs would have, you know, and you don't have the sort of um, traditional rock critic uh, distance from your work. Um, mm. Even even back then, like your early stuff, it always felt so... Um, personal but not in a non-critical way you know um did you did you get a, i mean w did your editors you know sort of say to you at that time like hey this is a, a, a strength you have or was it something that you sort of started to pick up on more and more as you wrote that that you had a different angle of approaching the stuff you know that i think is related more to that investigative approach that maybe like a grill Marcus has or, or something like that. Sure. Well, thank you. That's um, high praise and an intimidating comparison. Uh, but yeah, I think I did. You know, I mean, one big thing for me that I struggled with early on is I feel like a lot of early rock criticism, you know, it had a sort of antagonistic relationship with the reader. And, and I think sometimes that was really fun and funny. And, and mm -hmm. even as a reader, I sometimes enjoyed a critic being like, you moron, you know, this is, <laughs> this yeah, is not too. what you think it is. I kind of liked that, but, but it also didn't come instinctively to me as a, a writer. And I think figuring out a way to, you know, to have a perhaps like, and I don't want to use gendered language for this, although I'm going to anyway, to, to have a sort of softer and I think perhaps slightly more uh, kind of intuitive or emotional response to music and, and to sort of let that guide, you know, the way that I wrote about a record and, and, and also to kind of let that guide how I spoke to this sort of phantom reader that may or may not have existed for me. I didn't want, I, I didn't feel comfortable sort of 
kind of taking the the omniscient sort of all powerful critical voice and saying like this is what this is and you know if, if you don't get this then you don't deserve to you know buy records uh which i think was present in so much kind of early rock criticism i didn't it just didn't feel right you know <laughs> it was like wearing someone else's clothes and and so i think i had to figure out a way to to kind of write in a way that felt true and honest to me and my relationship to music and and that also could kind of exist in the marketplace and, you know, people would read it and maybe I would even get paid to publish it. Uh, so it was always kind of a balance yeah. there. And and then I think my interest just sort of expanded. Uh, you know, I don't know that I've ever been a really strong technical critic in terms of, you know, kind of really getting in there and sort of IDing like the effects pedal or, you know, the serial number or, you know, whatever this sort of arcane uh, kind of trivia that that does populate a lot of music writing. That stuff didn't interest me as much as these sort of bigger kind of contextual things and, and sort of how can I tie this music to the place where it came from? How can I sort of tie this music to its particular cultural moment? How can I maybe sort of draw some bigger, broader conclusions that are, you know, a little less granular, um, and that kind of writing isn't for everyone, you know, and I know there are a lot of readers who would really prefer a kind of, you know, like digging into the sort of note by note, um, a kind of a more sort of technical uh, breaking down of, of sort of how a record came together and how it sounds. I will, you know, d- do that stuff sometimes, but it wasn't really the the approach that I wanted to take. And, and I was hoping to get this sort of more expansive way of, you know, looking at records and sort of what they mean and what they mean to the people who listen to them. You know, your first book was a 33 and a third um, book about Nick Drake's Pink Moon. Um, uh, that came out in, Jesus, I'm, now I'm spacing. Was that 2000? I think it's 2008, maybe 2009. Two- <laughs> Sorry, it's like, what, yeah, what is I was, time I was gonna, anymore? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I was going to say, you know, that feels like 25 years ago for sure. Uh, <laughs> Yes, 30 indeed. 30 years ago yeah i think um, it was like 1975 yeah <laughs> were there other records at that time like did you have did you have like a like a top 10 list like if i was going to write a 33 and a third it's going to be about pink moon or insert x record did you have some others that were high contenders oh that's a great question i'm sure at the time i did i feel like every working critic in that moment had their like 33 and a third dream list. Um, You know, and now that we're so much, I think my book was maybe the 50th in the series or the 51st. And now we're, you know, many, many, many more volumes in the sort of pool of available uh, records that have not yet been written about is getting smaller every year. Uh, But I'm sure I did. I know with Pink Moon, I think the reason that record interests me uh, sort of ties into your last question, which was I thought, all right, this record itself is, you know, incredibly beautiful and moving and and sad and also sort of ecstatic in its way. And and I was interested in what it was doing musically and kind of the the kind of songwriter he was. But it had also had this posthumous life that I found really fascinating from a more sort of cultural critic kind of standpoint of, you know, how did this record get rediscovered and, and sort of what did it mean and why wasn't it successful during Drake's life? Um, and kind of why did it hit when it did? And and now it has endured for, you know, many, many decades. That story really interested me. And I think I had the sense, even though the 33 and a third volumes are short books, that it would need to be more. You know, I think Pink Moon is like 28 minutes long or something. I, I had the sense that like, I couldn't sustain a book length narrative just 
sort of parsing the sounds on that record, that it would need to be this kind of bigger cultural story. Uh, and I was interested in that kind of writing and that kind of journalism. So I think right away, I was like, this is the record, like, this is the one that I could, I could do this on, I think I could pull this off. I had um, Peter Garalnik on the podcast um, recently, and we spoke a little bit about um, his his sense that a great record uh, just simply cannot stay lost forever. Um, mm. That the evangelistic fervor of music listeners and people who care about music will, you know, however long it takes sort of uncover things. Well, we talked about John Donne, the poet, you know, from oh, the yeah. 17th century, who didn't, you know, didn't sort of receive his due, you know, proper until like the 1930s or whatever. So, right. uh, so that that sense of like a long afterlife, you know, do, do you think that there is sort of a, a, a sense of inevitability to that stuff being uh, rediscovered? I find that to be a very hopeful thought. Right. Yeah, of course. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating question. I think one of the first pieces I wrote for The New Yorker uh, was a piece about reissues. And it was it sort of asked that same question of kind of, you know, these records that didn't work in their moment of release for whatever reason, you know, and sometimes it was just I mean, it was a small press record and, you know, a dozen people heard it. And it was yeah, kind of exactly. doomed, doomed from the outset. It was never going to get a huge audience. But then these records that were sort of, you know, could have been bigger releases and weren't. And then the sort of time passes and it kind of gets dug up out of someone's attic and reintroduced to the world and is suddenly embraced. Um, yeah, it's always a really interesting thought experiment. You know, did, did the culture change? I mean, the record didn't change. Sort of why why now? Yeah. Uh, and, and then some resistance or, or being sort of cynical, I guess, about the idea that just because something was sort of old and lost, you know, there's a romance to that. And how do we sort of resist the idea of just kind of assuming that, and this was maybe a response to a sort of reissue glut of a few years ago, where it was like all these records were just sort of getting reinvigorated. Yeah. And it was like, this didn't work the first time and it still doesn't work. And, uh, you know, by virtue sure. of just being old and lost, it doesn't necessarily make it a masterpiece, but but certainly there are masterpieces that, you know, were, were ignored for whatever reason in their time. And yeah, it's kind of extraordinary. I feel like it's always fascinating when they reemerge and, and, you know, find the listeners they were kind of always destined to have. And I think when an artist can do that, can kind of cross their own context in a way or, or sort of create art that truly is timeless, that is not necessarily tethered to a moment and can work, you know, in 1970 and then also work in 2021 is, you know, it's really inspiring and incredibly cool. And I think, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of joy, I think, in, in finding those things and finding those records. And I'm a sucker for all of this stuff, which is probably why I'm always interrogating it. And I felt this when I was working on the 78 book too. <laughs> like, how do I, Oh yeah. how do I kind of turn an objective eye to this thing that is really old and we don't know anything about it and it's very mysterious and there's all this sort of you know, kind of metaphysical bullshit that I'm applying to it um, because it's a cool object and I want it. You know, you know how do I separate all of yeah. that from like a, a kind of honest, you know, look at the sort of virtue of the music and, and whether it succeeds or doesn't succeed. It's really hard. All those things get mixed up and I'm, I'm constantly working on my own romanticization or kind of fetishization of things like that. And it's, you know, it's a constant battle <laughs> maybe yeah. you have a similar reaction to that stuff oh my god yeah i mean of course like that's that's you're you're talking about the the story of my my life for the most part and <laughs> and and that's and that's you know uh 
part of me wonders if if the the romance you know um <laughs> we live in such a we live in such a, a a painful world sometimes i i sometimes i i view that romance and i just sort of think like yeah, get it where you can get it, you know, because like totally. it's in short supply, you know, transcendence is in short supply. And if you feel it for a second, if a piece of music makes you feel it, you know, it's weird, though, because you're right that there are all these contextual, um, you know, observations that need to be made. And we need to wonder about stuff. And did something get lost because people were, you know, too close minded to understand it? You know, you think about an artist like Jackie Shane, you know, who, mm, who let's say, mm you know, to, to use as a, as an example, this is an artist whose work is, is, is mind blowing. And you can see that culturally people were just freaked out, you know, they didn't know what to totally. do. So, so there are like all sorts of reasons a thing can get lost. And, and some of them are, um, you know, like nefarious forces at work in the culture you know and then other times the record sucks and nobody right. wants to hear <laughs> yeah. it and you know it's yes. just because you found an old an old record with a black and white photo on the cover and it's a dude with an acoustic guitar there's oh a God. chance in the record store you see that and you're like okay this is maybe gonna be great a real good chance that it's not gonna be great but you know i mean i, I don't know that was yeah. sort of just a, a whole jumble of ideas no well i have wasted many dollars on buying those records <laughs> you know, like what 1974 like a weird guy in a field with a guitar you know like how sure. can i go wrong <laughs> yeah and then you bring it home and you want so badly for it to be that kind of lost masterpiece and and yeah it, it is a sort of harsh uh kind of splash of water to the face when the record is just absolutely fucking awful i think for me at least too there's another thing i have to check sometimes and this goes back to what i was saying about my kind of punk rock or you know vaguely punk rock adolescence which is sometimes I think I, w I want to like something just because nobody else likes it you know especially in this era of kind of multitudes um, and plenty and you know music everywhere and everyone can access anything there is still some dumb part of my brain that's like well no one else has heard this you know, and it's yeah. this is super underground. I could not be more underground than I am right now listening to this record that no one else has ever listened to. You know, and of course, no one else has ever listened to because it, it sucks and it's not good. But <laughs> being honest with myself about all of those kind of competing wants and needs for this, you know, poor piece of vinyl. Um, yeah, that's a lifelong project for sure. You're talking, but I mean, in that in that instance, you're talking about uh, being a rock critic of yourself too, and yeah, I mean, think I think that's, that's I think that's what's really like. I think that's important to think about because that seems like that really is a, a sort of one of the driving forces in in your in your writing, you know. Yeah, well, the hope I think the dream is that you can kind of get your ego out of it, you know. I mean, and and it's something I think of a lot, like my you know, what do I owe my reader? And of course, like my allegiance is to them, like it has to be to them. And I think sort of, yeah, there's something really beautiful and satisfying about working in that mode. I think it feels really good to do it. But it is something I had to learn. <laughs> and I think you read a lot of critics, and you're like, Oh, buddy, like you're not, you're not quite communicating with the person that you think you're communicating with, you know, you're in the sort of echo chamber of your own head, or you and you know, a group of small friends. And uh, for me, at least the, the kind of work of, of, really speaking directly to and being of use to and sort of serving a reader is really important, uh, you know, to, to the act of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think about a record that like I, when you said 
when you said, you know, this is a record that nobody else likes, so I'm going to champion it or whatever, you know, I think about how many, <laughs> how many conversations I've had with people about Lou Reed and Metallica's Lulu and how, uh, <laughs> and how it's become, uh, for me, almost a white whale of like navigating my own bullshit um, and, you know, interest in, in, the themes and ideas of both Lou Reed and Metallica's discography. Um, totally. And it's, so it's, it's a record where I guess what, what the reason I bring this up is to say that like, when I try to talk about that record, I end up inevitably talking about things that I bring to the record, you know, like, listen, you can mm. tell they're straining for the, the golden cord here. They're, 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 they're straining to reach it and they fail to reach it. And that makes it all the more beautiful. And I'm just, the whole time I'm talking about myself. You know what I mean? Like I'm talking about like my ideas of like, I I can almost touch it, but I can't put my finger on what it is, you know? And so I don't know. And then I find myself saying like, well, yeah, and that's a good conversation to have around a record because what else is going to open up the ability for us to have these weird conversations about our insides and our our deepest hopes and dreams, you know, like, of course, that's what we're going to talk about. Totally. And I think if you can find a way and and you do this kind of handily and beautifully, like find a way to sort of make that transparent in the writing, you know, like this is something I hear in this record. And this really moves me because, you know, to to sort of own it and not slip into that omniscient voice of like, I'm going to sort of explain this to you and tell you why you should like it. And I am right. You know, it's, it's a different conversation to sort of say like, look, these are the things that sort of go on inside of me. And this is why this record works on them in an interesting way. And, and you know, maybe yeah. it will do the same for you and maybe it won't. But here's sort of what I'm hearing in this and why it's compelling. I, I, I find that writing really comforting and, and warm. And I sort of want to be engaged in a conversation with that kind of critic. Um, I respond to that. I think it's, re- and maybe you disagree, but I feel like it's relatively new in the kind of history and canon of music criticism this sort of transparency about like, well, I'm just a person and I bring a lot of shit to this listening experience and I'm going to, you know, make all of that really clear instead of pretending that I know more than you. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think so. I think that you're right that it is a more, it's a more new, it's a more sort of new thing and that it's a, and that it's like maybe a, a slightly more vulnerable and open, you know, approach to... Yeah. To this, you know, because I mean, the, the 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 only reason I ever wanted to write about music was because I, I, I felt like there was like my relationship with it so thoroughly and completely overtook me that like m- maybe it's like that for other people as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's a cool thing for for a person to sort of to focus on and i think it's a fairly safe assumption because you know we are all we're wired more similarly than we might know sometimes and i think that that at the risk of like i don't want to say like you know that there i i don't care very much about the idea of the universal uh as defined by any one person but then i do sort of love the idea of the universal as this sort of undefined thing that we can enter into and that when someone's talking about something as personal as a piece of music, you know, which sure there's lots of records where 
the person singing on the microphone doesn't have a personal investment in what's happening. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's probably more where they do, you know, and I don't know. I just, I find that such a, such a wonderful and exciting thing to untangle. And it feels like something that you'll never run out of that. You know what I mean? And I, I, I sometimes hear people say like, how do you find new music? And, and I don't like to be, uh, snooty about it but there's this part of me that goes like (laughs) how do you not find new music it's everywhere it's it's like there's never been more of it and it's right there and all you have to do is is reach out and grab it but at the same time that's paralyzing and and i think that i wonder if in your in your work as at the new yorker do you feel like that is part of the service that you're sort of offering the reader uh or the you know who you're trying to be loyal to this sense of like there's a there's a billion things out there. Here's one that I think is something. Of course, and I, I think there is um, resistance, or I have felt resistance certainly within myself, uh, in the idea of the critic as gatekeeper. But but I think it is a huge part of the job, and especially at a place like the New Yorker, you are sort of acting as a filter. You know, there's like you said, kind of untold amounts of music out there, and and I am this person that will sort of stand between you know, Spotify and you and and kind of tell you what perhaps I think is is worth your time. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, I think, a lot of pressure to that position, but a, a real thrill to it, too. And I think anyone who loves music, and, and I'm sure you feel the same way, like, there's nothing better than being like, dude, you have to hear this record, it's gonna blow your mind, like your brains are gonna melt out your nose, you know, like, it's so fun to kind of introduce people to things that you think are really good and are sort of worth serious consideration. And, you know, it was interesting kind of going in my career from, um, and this was not a direct move, but starting at Pitchfork and ending up at The New Yorker, you know, Pitchfork has, I think, a, a extremely kind of music literate audience. These are people who sort of, you know, they know everything, or at least they know a lot. You know, they're serious fans by and large. Whereas at The New Yorker, you know, it's not a music magazine, and a lot of people read and subscribe to The New Yorker for other things that appear <laughs> in its pages. So, it, you know, it always felt to me like that the challenge of that position was to sort of talk to people in a legible, kind of welcoming way about worlds that they may not be familiar with and about worlds that they may not be invested in yet. You know, there's this sort of opportunity to say like, okay, you own, you know, maybe 11 CDs that you bought in 2000. And and now, you know, for whatever reason, you're reading my column and, and here's this thing that I think is really rad that you should check out. And it's, you know, and, and to sort of write about it in a way that is, sophisticated one hopes um, and serious criticism, but also accessible um, to people who maybe are not kind of speaking that lingo or the shorthand that I felt comfortable using at Pitchfork and, and, you know, would just sort of not fly um, at a place like the New Yorker. And, and I don't mean to suggest that all New Yorker readers are dopey about music. That's absolutely not true, but you know, but it is just a broader and sort of more kind of diverse in interest um, audience, which has been exciting and also intimidating. Well, yeah, I mean, because it sounds, it sounds like it's 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 a challenge, but it's it's a cool kind of challenge, um, in that it requires you to once again dig even deeper uh, and and tell a story, a human story, you know, over uh, a set of genre qualifiers or whatever. Which isn't to say that that's what you know the average pitchfork reader wants, but there's a good chance that they might get something out of even that kind of writing versus. For sure you know, what you got to do there. 
it's kind of a formal challenge too sometimes. Like, you know, when I was writing for Pitchfork, I could name drop, you know, a producer like Timbaland, and it just didn't require any contextualization. And at The New Yorker, I will have to find a more, like, a you know, highly efficient and kind of evocative way to describe that dude and what he does in like three words in the middle of a sentence about something else, you know, and that so you for go me with, has been fun. You you always go with like Chris Cornell producer, right? Yeah. When you're talking <laughs> yeah, about Timberland, of, of course. I don't really know what else he's done. I don't. Is yeah. All right. <laughs> <R. I>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Uh. Yeah. I mean, very seriously. I, I um. I think you know one of the people that you you touch on in your book. Uh, Do not sell at any price. You, you talk about Harry Smith, uh, and I wanted to, to, to riff on him for a little bit. Um, you wrote an amazing piece for The New Yorker as well, um, inventing the tradition. And, you know, Harry Smith, this record collector and occultist, basically, you know, who in the 50s, he put together the anthology of American folk music, which kickstarted this whole countercultural movement. Um, and you write very movingly, I think, about his mystical impulses and um and the way he almost treated curation as something like a personal religion you know or a sacrament Mm -hmm. or something like that Uh, do you think that smith's high weirdness is sort of essential to his appeal and to his work it's a great question and again you know it's sort of as you were talking i was like yeah i blame smith for some of my tendencies to, to kind of mysticize the listening experience or certainly to mysticize the sort of rare object uh and and you know imbue it with all these kind of otherworldly characteristics i know that is something i learned from him and i think as dangerous as it is it's also quite beautiful and and i think there's something in the way that he thought about music as this almost sort of religious, you know, kind of transfiguring experience that is feels really true to my experience as a listener. And, and it felt good to sort of see someone kind of identify it that way, that, you know, this is intense. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's um, hard to put into words, you know, <laughs> and it's sort of visceral, and it's, uh, can be kind of intoxicating. And, you know, Smith clearly felt that way about his records. And, and he was also obsessed with this idea of, as you were saying, serialization and, and kind of the power in putting one thing next to another thing and and really forcing yourself to kind of reckon with, you know, the interconnectedness of these songs and these ideas. And, and you know, it sort of ties back into what you were talking about earlier about, you know, the, the kind of things that connect us and and the sort of intensity and the beauty of the human experience. And of course, we're all incredibly distinct creatures, but there are these things that unite us. And, you know, when we put together like a sacred harp song next to, you know, a Cajun fiddle tune, uh, you know, next to a blues, and these are really different traditions that came from really different people in really different places, but they are united by this feeling or this experience that feels you know, perhaps distinctly American, but moreover, I think just distinctly human. It's really powerful. It's really comforting, I think, to be able to sort of find those points of communion. And so I've always found Smith to be an incredibly inspiring figure in that way. And and in the kind of how seriously he took the idea of curation and, and the idea of, you know, taste almost. I mean, we were talking a little bit about the uh, I don't know, the kind of ickiness of thinking of oneself as a gatekeeper. But I, I think, 
you know, Smith did think of himself that way. Like, I'm, I'm going to listen to, you know, thousands of hours of music, and I'm going to find the best, and I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to sort of present it in this way uh, that kind of does justice to how magical it is. Uh, I, I do think that was a gift and a kind of a generous act, even though Smith, by many accounts, was, you know, sort of an asshole <laughs> and a difficult guy. Uh, yeah. I, I think that was a really beautiful gesture, and I think that set remains an incredibly kind of gorgeous and transporting document. Well, I mean, you mentioned the word transporting, and I think about that too, you know. Um, on a personal level, music can very easily function something like time travel, um, and it allows us to go back to moments um, in our own lives, you know. And, and so I wonder... You know, last year, Dust to Digital put out this really incredible B-Sides collection, um, which you uh, contributed to as well, um, that collected the B-Sides um, to to the songs featured on the anthology, um, minus a few, which were omitted mm. for uh, racist language. Um, but when, when you're thinking, how did, like, looking at the B-Sides and the collection there, because... What I found myself thinking as I as I listened to that was like that the that it was happening again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that feeling, it's happening again. And um and the selection the criteria selection for this was somewhat arbitrary. Not yeah, not really, you know, but there were like a set of parameters, like we're gonna feature the B sides of this. So the magic still comes through and it makes me wonder how much of the magic is happening in my head and is there anything <laughs> and is there anything wrong with magic existing in just our own heads and anybody else's who kind of wanders into it and and sits down with it. Did you have to sort of like wrap your head around anything like that? Thinking yeah, about of that course. project? I mean, it sounds like we had similar reactions to it, which is when I first heard the idea, I was like, ah, oh, what a dope idea. That's so cool. And then I kind of sat down, you know, to actually write the piece about it for The New Yorker. And I was like, you know, it's kind of a gimmick. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the voice <laughs> sort of crept in of like, just because it worked on the A-sides, like, why would we think it would work on the B-sides? And then I listened to the thing and it was like, holy shit, like just what you said, like this is working, it's happening again. Like I don't know why and I don't know how and this should have just been a kind of elaborate thought experiment of like, well, what if we flipped all the records over? What if we played all the records backwards? You know, like you could sort of come at it from any random angle. It shouldn't have worked and it did. And I feel like for me, and I think that set's extraordinary. And, and for me, it did sort of just affirm that idea of what you were saying kind of you know, I don't know why this works. It works so well. It's working on me. Like, who cares of the sort of how and why and, you know, whatever else might be going on here. It's that, what is that Leonard Cohen line? Like, ring the bells that still can ring. Like, it's, you know, it, this yeah. is making me sort of feel something. So, like, fuck it. Like, this is great and I'm grateful for it and I'm so glad. Um, and I do think there was a little bit of that kind of Smith magic in that set, in the B-side set working very nearly as well as the A-side set. Uh, you know, there's kind of no reason why it should have been as good as the original anthology. Uh, and yet I found it almost as moving, which is, yeah, incredible. I think that Smith was drawn to the idea of alchemy, you know, and the mm -hmm. idea of transmutation, taking something and making it into something else. Um, I, 
I mean, I have to admit that like, just like, as you were saying, I'm super drawn to these things and I'm, I'm a mark, you know what I mean? Like I'm, you start talking to me about the mystical process by which you <laughs> assembled this compilation and like, I'm fully on board. You don't have, you don't have to totally. finish the sentence, you know? <laughs> But I, I'm I, the same way. I'm like astrology. Come on, that's for rubes. But you know, but this, yeah, but yeah. the anthology of American food, like that's a sacred object. <laughs> I've I've found myself, you know, a couple of years ago, I was sitting with a friend, uh, James Fella, who runs like a small uh, post punk and and experimental label called Gilgongo Records, and mm. he played for me. I don't even remember who who was involved with it, but it was a a bootleg of the Beatles White Album, where it was like a hundred copies of the white album, a hundred vinyl copies of the white album all played at the same time. And then it was a vinyl record of what that sounds like. Um, (laughs) And it sounded cacophonous and a little bit nightmarish and like it was from another world. And I thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever experienced. Do you know what I mean? Like I sometimes find myself fascinated by the idea that like, as a listener, what I bring to the table is part of the thing. You know what I mean? And I For sure. I think that I think that's so interesting. So I think that Smith is such an example of that weirdness and like you know, Smith yeah, he was saying like, "Nah, this record doesn't make the cut," you know. Um mm-hmm. but I guess maybe in the hands of somebody else that other record, who knows what it'll become. But he was focused on what he was doing and focused on what spoke to him. And I think somehow there's this weird purity of vision that sort of comes through and then immediately start questioning and interrogating whether or not that's accurate. (laughs) Of course. That's a critic's instinct, I'm afraid. Um, But I think you're right that, you know, like what greater thrill is there than finding beauty someplace where you didn't expect to find it? Like that's, you know, it's sort of why we all get out of bed every day. Uh, And I think to apply it to music feels fair. You know, I I think of of course we do that. And of course it feels good when you hear a hundred versions of the white album playing at once and it's weird, but it's also gorgeous, you know, and something sort of loosens inside you or something opens up inside you. Like, you know, why not lean into that feeling? It's, uh, it's hard to come by and I think it's valuable. Well, it's just such an absurdity. And I think that like the absurdity of it and the novelty of things, you know, it's like, yeah, like you said, that's hard to come by in life. Like you got to grab onto it when it, when it comes. You, you, in 2017, you also wrote the liner notes to the Bob Dylan Trouble No More box set, which features music from his late 70s and early 80s Christian period, you know, sort of when Dylan went evangelical. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Yeah, speaking of beauty in unexpected places. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that was, that's, that's exactly the right transition. That's a weird record, a weird set of, of music. I love it though. And I found it I think it's maybe in my favorite of the bootleg series um, mm. because it's just so intense and it's so fervent. And obviously you hear that in, in all of Dylan's work, but I wonder you having specifically sort of immersed yourself in the, the Christian period of Dylan, do you hear any of that sort of mysticism or uh, fervor? at work in rough and rowdy ways, which you, you know, included in your, your top 10 list of last year? Mm, that's such a good question. Uh, 
Yeah, yes, I do. I mean, I think there is. And for, and for Dylan, like a particular kind of Americana, I think is a particular kind of gospel for him. And, and he's always sort of looking to it, looking to history and, and looking to kind of particular events, I think, for parables and for lessons and for, um, you know, proverbs, almost sort of ways ways in which he can kind of live his life. Uh, and I think his sort of genuine curiosity about those moments and his um, kind of devotion to them is is really moving and really interesting when it sort of emerges in the work. I mean, one of the things that interested me about the Christian period in particular and why it was, um, you know, such an honor and and also so daunting to write the notes to that set is, you know, we think of Dylan as the kind of consummate sort of raconteur and he's a bit of a trickster and you don't quite know if you can trust him and, and it's you know, you get this sense that he regards his audience with a bit of skepticism. Um, maybe that's a generous way to put it. Uh, but I think in that Christian I mean, they, period, yeah, the, they called him Judas. So I mean, he, yeah. you know, he's he's he's, he's, not, he's not he's not he's not far off. You know, right? Yeah, he didn't maybe make that up. Uh, in that Christian period, <laughs> I think we are seeing a a guy like to me that's the most human Dylan, and I think it's the most vulnerable Dylan, and and he's up there and he's preaching in a way. And I know there are critics and, and listeners and fans and Dylanologists who would, you know, probably argue that that, you know, that was just a different kind of pose and it was sort of a different kind of bullshit. But but for me, I really think in that moment he believed, you know, and I think the kind of burden of belief or the, or the burden of faith or maybe the privilege of faith, sort of depending on how you think about it, is sharing it, you know, sort of sharing the good word. And, and you could see him, at least I could see and hear him doing that work. And it was, people didn't like it and he did it anyway. And he had to, you know, he seemed to be sort of driven in those moments by some other mission that was not entirely visible to us. And and to me, that felt really human, you know, it was sort of here's this guy kind of doing this thing that I don't think is calculated, that I think is compulsory. And, and you know, I found that I don't know, it just made him feel more real to me in, in an interesting way. And I feel like he sort of continued that tradition recently. Like the the new records, I mean, they're really funny and they're, you know, I think lyrically they can be like a bit um, obtuse sometimes. I think all of that is like, it just makes him feel more real to me than, than some of the stuff that he's perhaps a bit better known for. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, again, for Dylan, I think that a certain kind of Americana is is gospel. And I, I think the new record, especially, it's so prevalent on there. It's so important to him. And, you know, and again, he's kind of spreading the word. He wants people to know. I feel like that's a factor of his, his radio show. You know, last year he did a, a special whiskey themed theme time radio hour. Uh, and I spent so much time listening to it so much, yeah. you know, and, and, just over and over again, just to hear him talk about these songs and to hear him laugh and seem like he was in this like bizarrely riffy, irreverent mode, you know? Like you, yeah. I heard something in his voice, both on the last record and um, that radio special, you know? Yeah. Um, that I think, I think you hear it in, in the last couple of records where he's singing standards and stuff. But I, I, I think that on rough and rowdy ways you hear you hear him delighting in his own uh I don't know his spirit. I feel like he's delighting in being alive, you know, uh in such yeah. a weird way. 
And then for the song to, or the record to end with, you know, uh, Murder Most Foul, I mean, which is in my top, probably in my top five Dylan songs now, you know? Totally, um, yeah. This remarkable elegy for, you know, a whole world that we feel like we're seeing literally pass away around us, you know? Um, I don't know. It seemed like such a, such a remarkable, a remarkable thing. And, and I think that having the view, you know, from the gospel era that like even Bob Dylan, when he can't shake a belief has to express it, you know, that's, that's a, that's a comforting thought. I think for sure. Makes I mean, me, and there's makes a, me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. No, me too. I'm totally with you. And, and I think there's a link and I think of this, you know, in the radio show and I think of it in the lyrics to murder most foul, a link to kind of Smith's idea of curation and serialization and sort of how do I present these songs or these images or these names or these moments in a way that is meaningful. You know, I'm pulling them all out of their respective contexts and I'm rearranging them and I'm handing them to you. And there is, you know, that's a narrative in and of itself. And I, I think it's something he's really excelled at. And it's something, it wouldn't surprise me if he'd learned from Smith, you know, or sort of absorbed through the anthology, um, how powerful it can be to kind of lay things side by side, you know, that have never been laid side by side before. Uh, and yeah. I certainly as a listener, I mean, I'm super into it. No, that's exactly right. And I think I, it made me think of like, you know, like that inevitable part when you're reading a Griel Marcus thing where it's like, now here is 34 songs uh, in a row. You know what I mean? Just yeah. like song titles or whatever. And it's like, what is this? Is this is this something? And it becomes something. I don't know. I don't know. I think that there is something. I think there is something mystical to it. No matter how often as a critic, I'm tempted to talk myself out of that. I think that uh, ultimately, I think I'm, I'm more satisfied leaning into it, you know? And it seems like maybe at least part of the time, that's the way you feel as well. Absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, Grail Marcus is an interesting example. Peter Goralnik does this really well too, I think, where it's like sometimes the writing about the thing to me is more interesting than the song, you know? And that's not uncommon with those two writers. It's actually not uncommon for me with many of the writers I love. You know, I find the way that they kind of talk about and, and position a, a cultural object to be more fascinating and arguably more beautiful than the song itself. I mean, sometimes it works the other way and it's an incredible song and no one can ever quite capture how incredible it is in language and it's silly to even try. But I think the opposite can be true too. And and I think those are two writers who do that for me a lot where I'll, you know, I'll read a chapter about a song and then I'll listen to the song and I'll be like, yeah, cool song. But like, I want to read those, you know, I want to read those paragraphs again. Uh, yeah. And maybe, maybe this is a music critic, you know, kind of inside baseball sort of experience, but, uh, but that happens to me a lot and I'm so glad that it does. Yeah. Well, Amanda, I, I got, probably let you go but i i can't tell you how much i've enjoyed speaking with you and i feel very confident that given uh four or five more hours we could <laughs> just can keep going and uh I, I hope that someday that that does get to happen i would really yeah. enjoy that well likewise this has been such a treat and i am uh Shocked that I have been forming semi-complete sentences after months of uh, being in the mountains, but it you made it easy. And yes, I wish we were on bar stools somewhere and could, you know, keep this going through our, uh, you know, 13th beer. But that will happen yeah. soon enough, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I certainly hope so. And uh, until it does, um, thanks so much for joining us here on Transmissions. And uh, hopefully we'll get to speak soon. 
great. Thank you so much. Perfectly executed, skillfully done. Wolfman, oh wolfman, oh wolfman, how? Rub-a-dub-dub, it's a murder most foul. Hush, little children, you'll understand. The Beatles are coming, they're gonna hold your hand. Slide down the banister, go get your coat. Thanks so much for uh, joining us once again. We'll be back next week with another strange conversation for these strange times. Our guest next week will be Warren DeFever, as his name is Alive and Third Man Records. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. Our video is edited by Andrew Horton. Graphic design by Sarah Goldstein. Video assets by Jonathan Mark Walls. And our executive producer and aquarium drunker founder is Justin Gage. There's a party going on behind the grassy knoll. Stack up the bricks, pour the cement. Don't say Dallas don't love you, Mr. President. Put your foot in the tank and step on the gas. Try to make it to the triple underpass. Black face singer, white face clown. Better not show your faces after the sun goes down. I'm in the red light district, like a cop on the beach. Living in a nightmare on Elm Street.